Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Ducks Unlimited podcast. Thanks for for joining us. We're continuing our conversation with Dr. Ben O'Neill, professor from Franklin College, and we were talking about some really exciting and unique research that they've been conducting as it relates to understanding the movements and um, and actually contribution to harvest of urban mallards, uh, a, a group of birds, a group of the waterfowl population that so many of us see on a uh, on a regular basis, but we make some assumptions about them and. Uh, uh, and, and, and don't really understand a lot about what, they're, what they do throughout the year and uh, what, what's the level of movement and contribution to harvest that they make. So we, we had a, uh, an introduction to this conversation on the previous podcast. So if you, if you missed that, I would encourage you to go back to get, the in, to get that introduction uh, because we're going to pick up sort of midstream here on, on, on this episode. And sort of to recap, uh, we had we – had, concluded with a discussion of the rate at which these banded mallards in urban urban environments uh, contribute to to the harvest and we had we had just discussed uh, they they're harvested at a rate of about 11% which is comparable to the harvest rate for wild populations of mallards and so now I want to get Dr. Ben O'Neill back on the line here and ask him to, to tell us a little bit about what they found with respect to where these birds were recovered, were harvested, and, and I think a lot of folks will find that really, really interesting. So, Ben, welcome back. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Yeah, so among those 183 birds that we've had harvested by hunters and reported, um, one of the, the things that struck us right away is that these birds are moving uh, from the 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 various trap sites, and there were about 86 locations that they were banded at across um, the central Indiana region and east central Illinois, and, and all that was within these urban areas. Uh, but one of the things that struck us immediately when we started getting band returns was how um, how they scattered across the region. And so uh, about half of them were harvested um, locally within uh, 10 kilometers, or about six miles of their respective trap sites. Um, but then uh, another half of them moved greater distances than that. About 30% of them um, moved kind of moderate distances uh, between 6 and 62 miles. And then about 20% of them actually moved a considerable distance uh, away from their trap site, went on these long-distance movements. Um, and so we were we were really uh, just, I don't know, intrigued by that, that, that they that so many of them didn't simply jump into the nearest cornfield and get get harvested there, yeah. but they were blasting around the region uh, in a variety of directions and a variety of distances. Yeah, so so geographically speaking, what did you learn about uh, where they went? Any particular bias, you know, in, in terms of their direction? Uh, yeah. What did you learn in that regard? Well, so these are these birds are banded in the summer uh they're recovered in the fall and so they're you know both of the regions that we were working in indiana and illinois are kind of uh mid-latitude and so you would you would you might expect that harvested birds in the fall and winter are going to move south right mm-hmm. you would see right. this kind of trend of these southerly movements but we didn't find that we, mm-hmm. they were there was zero uh trend in the direction that they moved they were if you look at a map they're just scattered throughout the midwest they were harvested in three Canadian provinces and nine different U.S. states um, around the 
the north central midwest part of the continent um and so they 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 went all kinds of places and um and actually the one pattern that did exist in terms of where they went was that of those birds that went um a moderate or long distance uh many of them 56% of them actually went in some kind of a northerly direction rather than a southerly direction mm. um and so that's that was a bit surprising to us was, uh, ben was that even for those birds that were recovered harvested in the year following their banding or did that did that uh, were those movements more likely to occur in subsequent years that's a great question um that would have been that's a combination of both the direct recoveries in mm -hmm. that same year and the indirect recoveries so we found um we found young hatchier birds that would make these long distance movements uh post fledging mm -hmm. but we also found some um some indirect recoveries of birds that um, that, that had gone through, you know, a, a, an annual cycle and then were recovered. And so um, when I've shared that with other folks, they, um, so mallards are, are repairing every year. And so it's, it's possible we can speculate in some cases that, that an individual might have become paired with a bird from a more distant region and perhaps then migrated during spring migration to a more distant region. But right. we don't, we don't really fully understand all those mechanisms yet. Some of it's molt migration, some of it's uh, just uh, some basic dispersal from the natal area, and some of it perhaps is pair bonding that draws individuals to more distant areas. Yeah, very interesting. Uh, that that's. Yeah. Uh, were there any? Uh, okay, so this has been been going on for three years. So I was going to ask you if you had any birds of a particular, uh, you know, particularly old birds that were were harvested, but you probably don't have any of that. <laughs> Let me, I, I will ask you in in any of your capture efforts. When you were trying to catch these birds, did you did you happen to come across birds that were already banded? You know, actually, no. Uh, so, no, no other mallards that had been banded by previous studies. So, so we actually we spent three years in Illinois and three years in Indiana, and they the, the way they overlapped, it was a total of four calendar years, 2015 through 2018. Um, and so, we certainly had recaptures that we observed and studied from right. our own study, but we actually did not encounter a single marked bird from any previous, uh, any previous work at all. Um, but to your point about the age, that's kind of one of the fun things of, of these projects is that here now in this, uh, this fifth year of the study uh, where we'll be analyzing the returns, we, we will start to get some, some estimates of, of uh, the age of some of these birds based on how long they've uh, carried that band until they were harvested. Yeah, and, and survival rates on any of these birds. Have you, uh, you know, we've talked about harvest rates, but that's just one component yeah. of mortality that birds face. Have you, uh, with, with just a few years into this data set, you probably don't have very much data to work with there, but have you been able to generate some preliminary uh, survival estimates, annual survival estimates? We're, we're really eager to do that. We We just now are getting to the sample size where we can, with any kind of integrity, start to estimate that. So here um, we just presented some of the some of the initial results at the duck symposium that we talked about last episode. And um, our our intention is to to we have this one more year of the the grant to analyze returns, and then our intention will be to kind of complete some of that that final analysis, including survival annual survival rates and and 
try to publish that work for the public and uh, for the scientific community yeah. here. I think that's going to be year. I think that's going to be a fascinating question in itself to see how those annual survival rates would differ uh, between that urban component, that urban population, and and the and wild population of mallards. That's certainly not I what I would hypothesize the the, the result is going to be. But I know what I would have yeah. hypothesized coming into the research that you're describing <laughs> now, and I would have been wrong. Yeah. So they uh, meet all kinds of different uh, sources of stress and mortality, and yeah. uh, and even their fecundity is totally different. And in, in at least I shouldn't say totally different. It, it has the potential to be totally different because of the, the differing environments that they exist in. Be the first to know when ducks are on the move. Sign up for DU's waterfowl migration email alerts and receive ongoing in-depth updates on the latest habitat conditions, weather changes, and hunting reports for your flyway. Visit ducks.org slash migration alerts. Well, so let's talk a little bit about What's next? You've introduced that, and you have another year of the funding to do this. Uh, are you going to try to secure funding to continue the banding work as it's being conducted or as you've been conducting it, or are you going to try to expand this? You know, one of the things that comes to my mind, and I know you've thought about it, is, boy, it would it would sure be nice to see what these – uh, what these urban birds are doing on an individual basis and, and on a finer yeah. spatial scale. And so that speaks to some, um, some telemetry, yeah, you know, so what's, yeah. what's next yeah. for this work? Great. Yeah. So we're wrapping up, um, this fourth year of the Pittman Robertson grant here with the Indiana department of natural resources. It's a federal aid and wildlife restoration grant. Um, so we have a lot of, um, sportsmen and sportswomen out there to thank for their uh, their support of this kind of work. This grant, uh, we'll, we'll put a bow on it, so to speak, uh, with a final report here in the next year. But we already have plans in place to start to address some of those questions that you've mentioned. Uh, I want to get a lot uh, better bead on the demographics, like the um, reproductive rates within these systems, to be able to look at nest success and um, fledging success to help inform that. Certainly, I'd like to get some better estimates of survival. We already are starting to build out some um, some monitoring protocols to, to help us get reliable estimates of abundances, not only from these two study areas in Indiana and Illinois, but hopefully a bit more broadly in, in a way that, that helps us understand, okay, if, if we estimate these many mallards exist in a nine-counter region of central Indiana, for example, can we translate that more broadly, extrapolate it geographically to other states? Because uh, Indiana is not unique. There's tons of uh, suburban counties uh, yeah. across uh, U.S. and Canada. Yeah, and these birds, uh, that, these birds, these areas, these urban areas are not included in our annual uh, you know, breeding population survey efforts for the most part, right? That's correct. Gen generally speaking, that's right. I mean, Indiana, uh, our state managers with the DNR do some um, – some monitoring of mallards during um, spring and summer surveys, but it's very, very unique. It's not, to your point, it's not included in um, federal uh, monitoring, uh, for example, you know, the May pond counts, yep. breeding pair counts, things like that. So, um, so yes, we, one of the simple goals is to try to ramp up the, uh, the abundance estimates in a way that helps us extrapolate to broader scales to then help provide some information for, uh, flyways and joint ventures as they try to understand the potential contribution of these urban reservoirs of population uh, to the broader broader flyways. Yeah, and then certainly as um, as telemetry technology becomes uh, more affordable and and scaled down in size, I'd love to be able to look at some of the individual movements at finer scales, as you said, and and really 
seek to understand how these birds are uh, interacting even uh, with with other migratory mm-hmm. segments of the population, we, we're, we're excited to start to get some of that going. And um, if we have time here today, I'd love to tell you about, a, I had a conversation um, with a, a big group of biologists um, at, the, uh, at the Mississippi Flyway Council meeting uh, back in August. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. In Duluth. Yeah, and that, the, that, was, a, um, that was a collaborative um, planning meeting that was um, participated in by biologists and researchers from Michigan, Wisconsin, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois. Um, and the goal there is to, of that study, um, under the leadership of Dave Lukanen there uh, at Michigan State, the goal of that study is to answer some really important questions about Great Lakes mallards. Mm-hmm. And so I presented this urban work there at that flyway meeting. And one of the things uh, that became clear to those folks is that the urban mallard component is a significant component potentially within that, within that broader Great Lakes mallard population. Absolutely. So we, we are developing a, uh, a collaborative proposal. I'm, I'm just really delighted to be a, a, a contributor to that, not leading that work, but um, it's great that there's folks from, um, from the Academy, from state natural resource agencies, uh, and from the federal government that are talking together about, hey, how can we leverage our resources to try to understand these uh, these questions uh, in the broadest way possible? And so that that proposal is already um, drafted and it's being developed in a, a robust way. And we're we're going to hope hopefully my team here will be able to contribute some of that um, some of the effort and some of the data regarding urban mallards to help really ramp that up in spatial scale. And so that work that you're talking about that's proposed, would that focus on urban mallards across a larger ge- larger geography, or is it focusing on, would it, would it encompass work on duck po- mallard populations in general across that, that Great Lakes region? Or both? Good question. Yeah, the, yeah primary both. Scope, the primary scope of that is Great Lakes mallards yeah. in general. Okay. But the, but the, the, the acknowledgement from from that team is that the the urban population segment is an unknown percentage of that population, and in order to effectively speak to uh, population trajectories and trends and those in that Great Lakes population, they're recognizing that we probably need to get uh, our our heads around the 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 behavior and the and the population dynamics of the urban segment because yeah. it's a uh, it could be significant and a potentially growing component that's of that right. broader segment. That's right. That's right. Well, let, let's uh, continue on that topic just a little bit. Um, are there any uh, are there any other projects of this nature, uh, where the, the studies of urban ducks, or well, I know there are studies of urban geese. I actually listened yeah. to listened to a presentation at the Duck Symposium uh, up in Toronto tracking uh, urban Canada geese. But any other work yeah. related to urban ducks across North America that you're aware of? Or is this sort of the, f- the first of its kind in a contemporary era? You know, um, colleagues up in Michigan, um, Barb and Don Avers uh, and their team have been have also been banding um, some urban mallards. Their um, their work is not uh, it didn't originate with a, a singular focus on urban mallards. They were simply trying to ramp up their uh, their state banding uh, effort on mallards in general. And over the over the course of the last four or five years, they've come to realize that 
but there's a lot of mallards to be marked in these urban areas. And so they've done a, a really impressive job of, of effectively capturing and marking urban mallards up there. And uh, for example, in the, the East Lansing uh, Metro complex um, and the Grand Rapids Metro complex uh, among others. And so, yes, there are folks that are um, marking some urban mallards. That's the primary one that, that I'm aware of. Um, I'd be shocked if there weren't some other folks doing a, a bit of this work uh, on the East Coast and the West Coast, yeah. um, perhaps even in the South. There's just, it, it's a, it's really a, a phenomenon that's, I think, pretty ubiquitous across the continent. And so I, I think we may be uh, one of the, the few that are really dialed in on the, the targeted questions. Yeah. Um, but I am excited to say that we're, we're looking for any other folks that are that are also interested in trying to trying to connect the dots so we can work together to answer this question as best we can. Well, this is really exciting work. You've mentioned a few other things already that I would love to di- dive in more details on, but I'm going to I'm going to resist the urge to do that, particularly the idea of surveying these birds in an urban environment, and that's something that. Uh, once your conversations with your state resource partners, resource agency partners, uh, once that continues and moves a little bit farther along, I'd love to get you back on and, and hear about how Great. those efforts are going and, and uh, any progress that's being made in, in figuring out how to survey these these birds and what we might be learning uh, with regard to the abundance you know, across, uh, across a larger geography. So we'll save that for another time, but uh, clearly clearly the research that you're, you've been engaged in here is a is a reflection of the fact that the landscapes in which we live and the landscapes upon which waterfowl depend are constantly changing. Uh, our, our, our world is becoming increasingly urbanized, and, and that affects not only us, but it affects waterfowl habitats, and it affects waterfowl populations, and it affects waterfowl populations, namely mallards and Canada geese, would be some of the most obvious, uh, in a way that's very visible to us. And I think this research provides a great connection for people uh, to, to, the, to the resource. So uh, I'm going to give you sort of the last word here, Ben, and share with us some of your insights on what you think this research means and, and why it's important to people, why it's important to the waterfowl res- resource and those that care about it. So what, what's been some of the biggest takeaways for you from this? Yeah, I appreciate that opportunity. I, you know, in our experience over those four years, we talked to hundreds and hundreds of folks uh, that live in these these communities, and we found an overwhelming love for for mallards. And one of the takeaways that I didn't expect was just how how well suited the mallard is uh, to be a, a positive catalyst to engage the the public uh, in waterfowl conservation and, and education, environmental education in general. That was really a cool outcome. And then in, in terms of uh, translating some of this work uh, to hunters and, and conservationists that are passionate about waterfowl. I, I just, I love to invite um, those that I just mentioned to, to start thinking about ducks and geese in, in, in richer ways. So a lot of us like me, uh, we love to spend time in the wild marshes and prairies mm-hmm. of our continent, yeah. but we also spend a considerable amount of our time in developed regions. And so I'm just trying to encourage folks to recognize that the, the birds we interact with in those developed regions are not independent of the the birds that we see in these wild remote uh, natural areas that we all love and and fight for and want to conserve and um, and in fact there's actually this really cool kind of sophisticated intermingling of these these groups of birds and so just uh, 
excited to see folks maybe opening their eyes to that reality and, and providing some data that, that informs that in really uh, concrete ways. And um, hopefully as, you know, we all are working, I think, to try to protect uh, natural landscapes and try to add habitat um, in our home regions, but there's a certain amount of development that is just uh, inherent in our society. And so what I, what I'm encouraging others to think about is how can we, how can we kind of acknowledge and reconcile that development and then also make the most of it by appreciating the wildlife that lives there and understanding them in this case, mallards. And then uh, in some cases, uh, even appreciating them from a hunting standpoint as, as they contribute to harvest as well. Yeah. Great points, Ben. Uh, you and I could talk about this for another half hour, I guarantee you. Uh, we haven't even, really, <laughs> haven't even really talked about habitats that you found these birds using and things of that nature. And so we're going we're gonna to leave that for yet another time. But, uh, yeah. but this is... This well, is... I just invite folks to, to stay tuned on that. We're, we're eager to share the work. And so we'll try to find as many outlets as we can to share that work for folks that are interested in it. And I'm going to stay in touch with you on it, and we'll probably have you back on once some of this other information has been summarized and the data has been analyzed. So so we'll definitely keep in touch on, on that. Thanks so much for joining us, Ben. I, I, this has been fantastic. Thank you for your contributions. Thank you for, for the work that you're doing to help us better understand waterfowl and waterfowl populations. Hey, um, my pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks.